Well, church family, good morning. So glad to see you guys as we once again gather on the Lord's Day for worship. Thank you so much for being here this morning, for prioritizing the Lord's Day as we gather together. Just a few things by way of announcement here at the very beginning. If you are visiting with us this morning, we're so glad that you are here, that the Lord has directed you our way. We want to make sure that we connect with you, that we get to say hello, that we get the opportunity to answer whatever questions you may have. These yellow connect cards, they're in the pews in front of you, there's some on the tables as you make your way out back. If you would do us a huge favor, fill one of these out and then drop it in one of the baskets by the doors as you make your way out. It just lets us make sure we connect with you, uh, that you don't uh, kind of slip in, fall through the cracks. We'd love to, love, love to see you, connect with you this week, so fill one of those out for us. Church family, just uh, three things by way of announcement uh, as we're thinking about this coming week. And the next couple of weeks, all of our Wednesday night activities crank back up this Wednesday, 630, men's groups, uh, women's groups, uh, teenagers, students, the whole kit and caboodle here, kind of crank back up this week at 630. Ladies, make sure you've signed up in particular because we need to make sure that we have books for you, all right? So we'll resume all of that Wednesday. Coming up in just a couple of weeks on the 22nd, immediately following the morning worship service right here in the sanctuary We'll just pause for a few moments. It's time for our quarterly business meeting. So that's on the 22nd. So please make note of that. And then something new, just I want to add to the calendar for us. The last Sunday of January and then for the last Sunday of, of the months that are coming up between now and we'll say like May, on the last Sunday of the month at 5 o'clock, we're going to call upon us to meet together in here in the sanctuary uh, beginning on the 29th for a time of prayer together from 5 to 6 o'clock on Sunday evenings. Here's the reason. As we think about the future of faith family, as we think about the Lord's leading and guiding and directing of us, as we seek after what the Lord may have us to do and to be uh, in the weeks, months, and years to come, uh, at the outset of, of my time here with you, I think it would be fitting for us to come, to pray, to seek after the Lord, uh, to think about some things together, uh, and just to ask of the Lord uh, to show us, to point us, to give us direction, uh, to stir our hearts, to unite our hearts in what he would have us to do in the coming, again, weeks, months, and years together here at Faith Family. So the last Sunday of every month, beginning this month in January on the 29th, 5 o'clock. If you have any questions about any of those things, let me know. We'll get you pointed in the right direction. Let's pray together as we begin our time of worship. Father, we love you and we thank you for this Lord's Day. God, thank you for your faithfulness to give us this day. Father, thank you for fresh grace and mercy that has met us at the dawn of this day. God, you are good. You are worthy. Father, you are high and lifted up. You are sovereign over all things. God, you are perfectly holy in all of your ways. God, you and you alone are worthy of our praise this morning. Whether it be the praise of our lips as we sing, Father, our praise as we read your word, as we preach your word, our praise as we give unto you. Father, your praise as we come to the Lord's supper table this morning. God, it is all for you. Oh God, would you quiet our hearts? The, the, the noise, the distractions from the week behind or the week ahead. Oh God, would you calm those things in us so that for these moments together, on this glorious day, God, that we might be able to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. 
God, we love you and we thank you. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we open in worship this morning.
be seated. And he crowned him with glory and 
Go ahead and take a seat. We will spend a few minutes in our verse of scripture that we're memorizing for January, and uh, then we'll pray and we'll continue in worship as we open uh, the word together. So we're in Zephaniah, which is a minor prophet at the end of the Old Testament, and it's neat how the Lord provides as he connects things together because we have the, the Psalm, Psalm 8, that we read just a minute ago that transposes this verse so incredibly well. Because we see in Psalm 8 how high and majestic and great the Lord is. And then we have this glimpse here in Zephaniah 7 or 3:17 of his kindness, his nearness. That even though he is high and lifted up, even though he is the Lord creator of all things, that all things exist and are sustained because of him, he knows his people. He is in the midst of his people. He is with his church. So let's recite it out loud if you would. Follow with me. Uh, in uh, It should be on the screen. I don't have it memorized yet, so I don't expect you to yet, but this month we're going to get it, right? Yes? Fantastic. Good. Good. So read, uh, read with me out loud. Here we go. The Lord your God... It's in your midst, a mighty one 
who, <laughs> who will save, sorry. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord your God is in your midst. We are not special. I know you, me, I know I can speak personally, I think I'm pretty special. But in reality, what can I do? I can't change the seasons. I can't call anybody up and change nations. I can't move times. In two generations, I'll likely be forgotten. It's the same with us all. We think of ourselves very highly, but in reality, we are simply people. We are here today and gone tomorrow. And in a way, that's a comfort, but in a way that should shatter our, our perspective of self-worth. Our value comes from the Lord, and yet he is with his people. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that it is unbelievable that God would be with us. The value we have is from him. It is a gift from God. It is the image God has placed in us and with us, not because we are of, we have, are un, of earned merit, that we have deserved a thing, but God in his grace is with us, has provided for us, walks near to people. And that is only because of his son, Jesus. That Christ came like you and me, lived and died and gave his life on a cross, sinlessly, that he would remove the sin from the, the lives and the hearts and the souls of people. That he would pay that debt that if you are then in Christ, in what he has done, you can be freed and forgiven and given life eternal. Therefore, he is within your midst. He's within the midst of his people by the blood of Christ as he has gathered them together. We have cause to rejoice, cause to be humbled, and cause to remember who God is and who our Savior is. Pray with me if you would. Father God, I thank you. God, I thank you that you are in the midst of your people. I deserve nothing. To have another day is a gift from you. God, forgive me for how often I forget that. Forgive me how often I forget, how often I take for granted, how often I want to wrestle out of your hands what I think is what I deserve. But God, by grace... I have been saved by grace, we've been saved by grace, we've been given life, by grace we've been given today, and by grace we'll be given tomorrow, God. Lord, help us, help us in our, our perspective of our lives in the world to remember your grandeur and our humility. That you, Lord Jesus, came and took flesh and dwelt among us, that you you added upon yourself the image, the life, the body, the, the, the human life of a servant. And being found in appearance as a man, you humbled yourself. God, may we humble and have that mind of Christ within us that, Lord, we would be humble servants of you. That we would seek that our moments and our hours that you would give us, that we would, we would live those in an effort to please you for your glory and in appreciation for the goodness and the grace that you've given us. 
not presuming that we have merited a thing, but that it is by your grace that you are with us and you are in our midst. So, Father, help us. Help us today. Help us tomorrow that we, Lord, would walk humbly and walk in faith, trusting in you. And that, God, Lord, as humble servants, Lord, we we would be vessels prepared to be used by you and that we would see you do incredible things through us in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our community, Lord. That, God, you would provide, Lord, opportunities that we would in faith walk through. That we would, Lord, be good representatives of you and we would speak of you well. So, Father, would we, Lord, have hearts prepared, souls that are focused upon you, that, God, then we would see you do incredible, divine things in, in, the, in our circumstances and around us, God. God, we thank you. We thank you for this time, this next few minutes set aside to hear, Lord, what your word says. God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth? That, God, you would, you would help us to be mindful of what you say, mindful of what you have inspired, God, and not just considering what's going to happen next, not just focused on lunch or other distractions. May we be focused, Lord on your word and upon you in this time. In Jesus' name we pray, asking all these things. Amen. is that they would go around the world and that they would take the name, the fame of his name, the glory of his name, and that they would make it known. Whether they be in Egyptian slavery, whether they be in victorious triumph claiming the promised land, whether they be among the Canaanites, or whether they be carried off, into foreign lands during the Babylonian exile, what God always intends for His people in all of those contexts is that wherever they are, they are to declare Him. And then, by the time you make your way into the New Testament, the very end of the Gospel account, particularly the very end of Matthew's Gospel account, there is the commission that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to 
his church and to his people to go into all the world to preach, to teach, to baptize, and to disciple. So then, in response to that, every Lord's Day, churches just like this one, we gather together and we hear the call to take what we have been taught, to take what we have believed, and to go into the world to make the gospel known so that men and women, boys and girls, may come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. However, as soon as we leave this building and we step back into the world in which we daily live, we are immediately confronted with an ever-increasing opposition and we are confronted with an intense wickedness from this crooked and perverse generation. And in the face of such opposition, and in the face of such wickedness, we may find ourselves asking questions such as this, can the light really pierce the darkness? Really? It's so wicked. It's happening so fast. Can my little light Can it actually pierce the darkness? Is the Word of God, is it really going to win the day? Is the Gospel really effective? Maybe we're even asking questions like, is it all worth it? Is it all really worth it? In just a little bit, when we come to the Lord's Supper table together, we'll hear that familiar refrain from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And yet it's possible that this thought passes through our heart and our mind. What good is it going to do? What good is it going to do? The world is so wicked, they're not going to listen to me. They've got their agenda and it's being pressed so rapidly and so aggressively. What good is it going to do? The darkness is so dark and it feels like it gets darker with every passing day. Again, what is my little light? What is my little light going to do to expose the darkness? How is it going to get through? to anyone. Is it all worth it? Church, I have a singular aim in these few moments with you this morning, and here it is. It's that of encouragement. In light of the text before us in Matthew's gospel, as we return to our study here, I want to encourage you. I want to cheer you on. I want to put some wind in your sails and I want to remind you that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ cannot be stopped and it is all worth it, beloved. In all that we are called to do, in all that we are equipped to do, in all that we are commissioned to do, beloved, the gospel cannot be stopped and it is worth spending our lives to make this glorious gospel known. For we're reminded in places like 2 Timothy 2 and verse 9 that while Paul might have been in chains, he said the word of God is not in chains. Or in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, the word of God is living and it is active and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. We're reminded of Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8, the grass withers. 
And the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. We're spurred on by Romans chapter 116 that reminds us that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is the power of God unto salvation. Church, in all of our ministry efforts, we will not fail. And it has nothing to do with us. As Matthew rightly directed us a moment ago, at the end of the day, we will not fail, not because the guy in the pulpit is so great or the people in the pew are so amazing. We will not fail because the Word of God will not fail. We will not be thwarted in our efforts because ultimately you cannot thwart and stop the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our time Our effort, our energy, and our money, oh dear saints, it is all worth it. It's worth giving it. It's worth losing it. It's worth spending our lives for these things. Now how do I get all of that out of Matthew chapter 2 where Herod is killing babies and seeking to maintain his own kingdom along with ancient prophecies Fulfilled. Beloved, I, I think as we look at these verses together, we'll see so clearly the efforts of Herod, Satan himself, to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ and subsequently the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see how those efforts fail and how the Lord Jesus Christ is still alive, which means that as we sung earlier, our hope springs eternal, dear saints. Because Herod is dead, but King Jesus is still alive. I want us to see two reasons this morning from the text why the gospel cannot be stopped. I want this to serve as an encouragement to you in your labor in the Lord. Two reasons why the gospel The good news of the Lord Jesus Christ cannot be stopped. Number one, the gospel cannot be stopped because the hope of the gospel is eternal. The hope of the gospel is in and of itself eternal. Therefore, cannot be stopped. Pick up the text with me, Matthew chapter 2. Read with me verses 16 down to 18. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children. And she refused to be comforted because they were no more. You recall the flow of Matthew's gospel up to this point. The Lord Jesus Christ has been born in Bethlehem. Matthew records for us that these magi from the east come to seek out the one who has been born king of the Jews. They meet with Herod, who is uh, sort of the quasi, uh, almost self-appointed king of the Jews. He immediately becomes 
uh, concerned, worried, angry. He needs to stamp out this new opposition that has arisen. He tells the Magi, I once you have found where the child has been born, come back to me, let me know, so that I too may go and worship him. But in that, we, we see through the facade, right? It's pretty clear just in reading Scripture. Herod has no intention of worship. He has every intention of destruction. The Magi go, they find their way to the house where Joseph, Mary, and Jesus are. They present their gifts, and we read in verse 12 that they have been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, and so they go back to their country a different way. In the meantime, the messenger of the Lord comes to Joseph that night, says to him, get out, you've got to go, take the child and his mother to Egypt, and stay there until those who are seeking the child's life are, uh, are, are dead. So Joseph goes, he and his small family are now in Egypt, and now we come back to uh, we come back to Israel, verse 16, and Herod realizes in verse 16, I, I've, I've been duped. Uh, these, the Magi didn't come back. Maybe word gets back to him that, hey, we saw that caravan leaving a couple days ago. They're gone, and he is immediately enraged. He is seething with anger. Uh, this new king is a threat a threat to his kingdom that he has made. This new baby is a threat to his rule and reign there. And so in response, he does what? He gives the order in verse 16 that go to Bethlehem and destroy all the male children two years old and, and under. Jesus at this point is likely several months old Maybe closing in on a year, Herod assumes that if he gives the order for two and under, that that will more than cover and encapsulate the, the threat that he pursued, that he perceives. So he sends the order. Children slaughtered, those two years and under. There's echoes of Egypt here. You recall in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 22 that Pharaoh gave a very similar order, all the male children to be thrown into the Nile. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, Satan has been at work trying to prevent Jesus from coming. When you read through all of the horrors and atrocities that often happen at the people, uh, to the people of God, maybe sometimes even from within their own midst, the efforts taken to destroy and to destruct, these are efforts placed into the heart of sinful man by the one who hates God the most. Satan jealous for his own glory, not the glory of God. Cast away from God's good presence, now the eternal perpetual enemy of God, of the gospel, of God's people, the church, and he takes every effort to keep Jesus from coming, but he fails. He gloriously fails. Even though we saw how the dragon stood before the woman seeking to devour the child, yet the child was, was quickly swept away unto God. Satan has failed, but he keeps fighting, and now through Herod, seeks to slay and destroy the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew then quotes verses 17 and 18 that what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah would be fulfilled. The slaughter of small children, Bethlehem. Matthew is connecting back to a historical moment 
that happened among the people of God and the prophet Jeremiah. You recall that Jeremiah prophesies of a, of a coming Babylonian destruction of Judea and then a subsequent captivity in which God's people would be bound in chains and taken away from the promised land, taken to a land that was not theirs to live in exile under Babylonian rule. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, in the midst of all of this coming destruction, like so often happens in the prophets, there is a ray of hope that enters into the picture. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, God promises in that to restore His people. But then in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 15, in the midst of foretelling of future hope, Jeremiah goes back and he speaks again of the days when Israel would first be taken into captivity. And that's being quoted for us there in verse 18. Speaking of that moment, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. It's quoting Jeremiah 31, 15, thinking about that moment when Israel is taken into captivity. He mentions here a place, place Ramah. Ramah was six miles north of Jerusalem. And in Jeremiah chapter 40 and verse 1, it tells us that the Babylonians took all of their conquered peoples, all of their conquered foes, and they took them to Ramah where they would bind them in chains, and then from Ramah they would leave to go eastward to Babylon. Scripture also tells us that it is very near to Ramah where Rachel is buried. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning. And here Rachel is used to personify, to be symbolic of all the mothers in Israel who would weep over their children who were either killed or were being taken into captivity. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. And Matthew takes that ancient prophecy from Jeremiah chapter 31 and here applies it to the destruction of of all the two-year-old and under-male children in Bethlehem. As Rachel mourns in Jeremiah 31, so the mothers of Bethlehem now, they mourn. They mourn over the wickedness. They mourn over the utter depravity. Infanticide. The killing of infants has just taken place. And this doesn't even really rise to the top of all of Herod's atrocities. But this is an awful moment. And it is right that there would be weeping and mourning. No comfort in this moment. Yet, in the midst of it, there is hope. Jeremiah 31, verse 15, reminding them of that moment when they're taken into exile, weeping and great mourning, a refusal to be comforted. And now in Bethlehem, darkness, yet there is hope. 
Because in Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 16 down to verse 17, in fact, would you turn there with me for just a moment? Jeremiah chapter 31. I want you to set your eyes here because here comes the crux of the matter. In Jeremiah 31, verses 16 and 17, comes another call from the Lord. Another reminder from God. And beloved, I'm praying and I'm trusting and I'm hoping that this hope-filled reminder sinks into our souls this morning. Look in Jeremiah 31. You see in verse 15 that quotation from Matthew is using in chapter 2. But then look at verse 16. Thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping. There's great weeping, bitter weeping, verse 15. Now the call from the Lord comes in verse 16, stop weeping. And your eyes, restrain them from tears. No more tears. No more weeping for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. And they, meaning the people that are going into exile, will return from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future declares the Lord, and your children will return to their own territory. Do you see it, saints? Do you see the eternal hope that even in the midst of crushing darkness, it is there. It is piercing through the darkness, the promise from God that weeping and mourning will cease and hope will be renewed. That it will come. That there is hope for your future. Church, just as God preserved His people in Babylon and then brought them out of captivity, so God is doing what in Matthew's Gospel? He's preserving the life of His Son so that He might do what? So that He might bring me and you out of the bondage of our own sin, the captivity of our own depravity, and to give us a present and most certain certainly a future hope. And then turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 because Peter picks up this theme of hope. And this is so rich, church. 1 Peter chapter 1, written to a people persecuted for the cause of Christ. Darkness and depravity is ever around them. It is hard for them to follow Christ. It is hard for them to proclaim Christ. No doubt they must wonder, what is it all for? And he writes to them in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Church, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ cannot be stopped because the hope of the gospel is eternal. 
even in the midst of Israel's great darkness, there was hope. In the midst of your darkness, in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the prevailing wickedness that is all around us, and in the midst of the questions that we're sometimes asking, even in our own hearts, is it worth it? Is it accomplishing anything? I keep doing this and it seems to get nowhere. We keep preaching and nobody seems to repent. Is it all worth it? Is the gospel still effective, church? Absolutely it is. And it still remains the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Church, the gospel cannot be stopped because the hope that the gospel brings, that hope is eternal. It springs ever eternal. It is an artesian well that is just constantly, constantly churning and pouring out grace and mercy from God in Christ and renewing constantly our hope in Him. God is at work then in you, dear friends, in your sin, in your struggles, and the stuff that you've got going on in your life, the gospel that you say you believe, it is therefore at work in you, putting sin to death and restoring and doing the Spirit's work in you. And secondly, church, God is at work in the world. And I know sometimes it may not seem that way. I know sometimes you get weary and exhausted and you, you, you find yourself, maybe if it doesn't come out of your lips, the cry of your heart becomes, how long, oh Lord? How long? And you don't want to keep laboring. It's wearying. Maybe you're not seeing a lot of fruit from the labor. Oh dear saints, keep grinding, keep plowing. Keep serving, keep teaching, keep preaching, keep giving, keep going. Why? The gospel can't be stopped. If Herod couldn't stop it, then nothing will stop it. The hope of the gospel is eternal. And so God is at work. Be encouraged in that, O church. But then let's look at secondly here, second reason why the gospel cannot be stopped. This may be the best of all. The second reason, the gospel can't be stopped because Herod is dead and Jesus is alive. Herod is dead and Jesus is alive. Verse 19. But when Herod died, around 4 BC, he dies a terrible, gruesome death. It's almost too gross to talk about in A setting such as this, you can read of it on your own. Herod dies a a terrible, gruesome kind of death. He dies around 4 BC. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Bethlehem and said, Get up and take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, He was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee. He came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Herod dies. Joseph there in Egypt is told uh, by God 
get up and take the child, go back to the land of Israel, those seeking his life are dead. So he goes back, verse 21, is immediately obedience. On his way back, it seems at the beginning of verse 22, he learns that one of Herod's sons, Herod had three sons, and when Herod died, sort of the kingdom was divided among these three sons. Archelaus was the, the, the most wicked of them all. He was 19 years old when his father died. He commits a lot more atrocities than his father ever committed. He ends up getting deported and sent into exile himself by, by Caesar because he just was a troublemaker. He just was always persecuting somebody, always causing these, um, these riots, these uproars. He was a terrible guy. Joseph is concerned that Archelaus might be like his father and seek out the life of Christ. And so he's warned by God in a dream. At the end of verse 22, Joseph is and instead of going into the, the south region of Judea where Archelaus is ruling, he goes north into the regions of Galilee where another one of Herod's sons, at this point, not quite such a, a, a terrible human being, Herod Antipas is there. And this is going to be the Herod that rules in that region throughout the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the Gospels. And in going to Galilee, we read here, that it, they came and lived in the city called Nazareth. It's a little small village, a little small town, sits down in a little valley. It's pretty insignificant, not a lot going on there, nothing of notoriety of fame. So they go, they go to live in Nazareth, and it's interesting that when you begin to read just a little bit about what the scriptures tell us about Nazareth, to be from Nazareth or to be Nazarene was actually a term of derision. If somebody called you a Nazarene, that wasn't a good thing. All right, They were scorning you. They were deriding you. You remember early in John's gospel, John chapter 1 and verse 46, Philip goes and finds Nathanael and says, hey, look, we, we found the one, and he's from, he's from Nazareth of Galilee, and Nathanael in John 146 says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? That's a terrible place. The rundown kind of town, not a whole lot going on there. Surely the Messiah cannot come from Nazareth. At the end of verse 23, Matthew says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he, meaning Jesus, shall be called a Nazarene. And then several places throughout the New Testament, we read of Jesus the Nazarene. There'll be a sign above his head when he is crucified, Jesus of Nazareth. There's no specific, there's no one specific prophecy about Jesus being from Nazareth. But you notice what Matthew says here. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, plural, and what Matthew is doing in that moment is he is taking places like Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53 that talk about how the Messiah, how the coming Messiah would be despised. He would be rejected. He would be forsaken of men, just as those from Nazareth themselves also were. So that Jesus is Nazarene. It shows the prophecies of Jesus being reviled and scorned coming to fruition in him. Here's the point, though, in this last section of chapter 2. Herod dies. The one who raged, the one who hated, the one who murdered, the one who shook his fist, the one who hated God, who persecuted the cause of the gospel, is dead. 
And not just is it Herod that dies, but every ruler, every persecutor, they come, they go, they live, they die, but that's just it. They die. But Jesus is alive forevermore. And because Jesus is alive, when all other gospel detractors die, what that means for us, church, what that means for us is that we go forth in gospel ministry in great hope and the knowledge that our labor in the Lord is never, ever in vain. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is writing this amazing treatise on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And he gets down to the end of it. In the very last verse of chapter 15, in verse 58, he says this, Therefore, in light of the fact that Jesus is alive, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Because Jesus is alive, your sermons are never in vain. Your teaching of children is never in vain. That gospel conversation that you have with a believer Even though you've had it a hundred times and they've not turned from their sins, that conversation is never in vain. We only fail, church, when we fail to share the gospel. But when we share the gospel and make Christ known, we are not failing. It is God's gospel. It is God's power at work. And through our faithful ministry and proclamation, God will save his people from their sins. And so church, go, serve, give, sacrifice. Be uncomfortable. Hebrews 13, go outside the gate with Jesus. It's it's challenging out there. They're going to persecute you out there, but join him, Hebrews 13 says. Bear his reproach, Hebrews 13 says. Church, it's worth it. The gospel can't be stopped. God is on his throne. And so let the nations rage. Our hearts break at the darkness. Our hearts break at the crookedness and the perverseness of the culture around us. But we do not fear. And we do not cower. We step out boldly in faith and we go, knowing that the gospel cannot be stopped because hope is eternal. Because Herod is dead and King Jesus is alive forevermore. Church, are you deeply committed in your hearts that come what may, opposition, being ostracized, whatever sacrifice is called upon us to make, are you at a place in your hearts where you are willing to step out in faith and to serve and to go and to hear the voice of God from His Word and to be obedient to that? Church, if we do not engage the darkness, nobody else is going to do it. Nobody else is going to do it. 
If we don't go and tell, they're not going to hear it, Romans chapter 10 tells us. So this is not a conversation about should we serve, should we go, should we sacrifice. It's an encouragement to us that reminds us that the gospel cannot be stopped. And so we go out in faith. Friends, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you saved by Him? Are you in Him this morning? He's alive. If He's dead, don't worry about it. If He's dead, don't worry about it. But He is alive, seated at the right hand of God, one day returning. And He is the one with whom we have to do. Have you turned from your sins? Have you come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? There is no other Savior. There is no other, there's no plan B for God. This is why He goes to such great lengths to sustain the life of His Son. You must come to Him by faith today. Do that. Call out to Him. Be saved by Him and in Him today. Church, in a moment, by the eating and drinking of the bread and the cup, we'll proclaim the Lord's death and hear the call to do that until He comes. Go forth confidently, knowing that the good news of the gospel represented here before us this morning, it cannot be stopped. And so you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we consider the atrocities of Herod and the weeping and the mourning that it produced in Bethlehem, God, even in the darkness of that evil, God, we see the hope of the gospel. God, I pray that our hearts Maybe there are hearts in the room that hope has waned. Faith dimly burns. Maybe people are asking questions. Is it all worth it? Is there still power in the gospel? Is the gospel really at work in my life? Is it really at work in my home? Is it really at work in this church and in this world? Oh God, remind them the power of the gospel, of the eternal nature of the gospel. Father, center our hope on a resurrected Savior. That because He is alive, Because all detractors ultimately die and return to the dust. God, because that is true. God, there is hope and there is power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, help us to respond accordingly to that. God, as we come to observe the Lord's Supper this morning, 
there is a proclamation that we all collectively make as we put the bread into our mouths together, as we drink the cup back together. We are preaching a sermon together this morning. Who Jesus is, of what He has done for us, of what He can do for the lost who comes to Him, God, renew our hope. God, the, 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 the faintly burning wick. God, would you fan it into flame this morning? The bruised reed. Oh God, would you bind it up? Give us great joy and hope now as we continue to worship in the observance of the Lord's Supper. Through Christ our Lord, we pray it. Amen. Amen. As our elders and deacons begin...